0: Greetings and welcome to the For The Ride podcast. I'm your host, Adam Vanderveen, and all the views and opinions expressed on the podcast are solely those of myself and the guest. So we got a cool episode today. Like I mentioned last week, this is a two-parter where part one was an interview with Brandon Posh from about a year and a half ago, and part two is an interview I did with him about a week ago. But before we get to that, let's read a comment. Today's comment is titled Podcast for the Moto Addicted, and it's from CU Tiger DS Rider. And they had to say, Can't believe I'm just finding the Triumph podcast. My wife and I both ride Triumph motorcycles, and I love the classics look and feel balanced with a premium fit and finish. I really enjoyed the Steve Camrade interview. I'm looking forward to binging out on all the backlogged episodes from Scott and Clemson. All right. Well, Scott, super cool that you and your wife ride. Actually, as I'm recording this intro right now, today's actually my wife's birthday, which coincidentally also happens to be my three-year anniversary with Triumph. And as a birthday present, I got my wife a bike. So I'm looking forward to riding with her. We haven't really done that yet because typically she's just ridden on the back with me because we didn't have two bikes. But I got her the new Street Twin EC1 Edition. So that's the, the second bike in our garage right now. And actually, one of the reasons uh, my wife and I are going to be able to ride together is because she took the basic riding course with the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. So if you would also like to learn how to ride and get your motorcycle endorsement, visit TriumphRider.com and you can get a free promo code for the basic e-course. It's a three-hour online course that's a prerequisite to getting your license. Thanks for the comment, Scott. Just shoot me an email to fortheride.us at triumphmotorcycles.com, and we're going to shoot you a t-shirt. All right, next, I want to share with you guys just a little bit of news. Cool story coming out of Spain last week, where five-time world enduro champion, Ivan Cervantes, he went ahead and he raced the Baja España Aragon Rally, and he did that on a Tiger 900 Rally Pro. Almost a stock bike. I I was talking to them via email. They did some new wheels because they were allowed to run mooses in their tires, and... They tuned the suspension for him, but uh, aside from a specifically tuned suspension and some new wheels, it was a stock bike and the results were pretty impressive. So Yvonne took first place in the first ever trail category, but more impressive than that, he took 12th place overall out of 75 total riders. And only 33 minutes and 50 seconds behind the first place rider, which is riding on a 450 proper motorcycle for that type of rally. I'll put the link in the bio for that article. On a related note, if anybody's interested in learning how to ride an adventure bike off-road, come visit us at Sturgis. We're going to be up there this week for the entire rally. We're going to be at the Buffalo Chip. But uh, specifically, we're also going to have Jeff Stanton come visit, and he's going to do a series of daily intro to off-road rides. So if you want to see what an adventure motorcycle feels like, not on pavement, and you're going to be in Sturgis, come visit us at the Buffalo Chip and take a a one-hour intro to off-road ride with Jeff Stanton. All right, now for today's interview, like I said, this is part two with Brandon Posh, and this one's a pretty cool one because we got a little bit technical about the race and uh, asking about strategy and drafting and then he also told us a little bit about what it was like to ride on our brand new Project EC1 electric prototype motorcycle so let's give a listen to that second interview with Brandon I got the key to the highway I'm all packing, I'm going to go Lord let me ride out tomorrow honey I won't be back For the listeners, that this would have been addressed in the comments, but um, since you've been here last, a lot has, has happened. And when you talk about you're on a brick next to Nixon and Knievel um, in England at the Triumph Hinkley factory, we have a, a literal walk of legends and uh, iconic um, Triumph riders from uh, the entire brand's history uh, have bricks on this walk of legends, and you are the most recent member of the Triumph Walk of Legends.
1: Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. I'm actually right next to uh, Alex Marquez and right in front of Peter Hickman, but on that same row, yeah, like you said, Gary Nixon's there, Evil Knievel's there. Uh, I think they said Gary Johnson. Like, a bunch of TT riders are there. Like, it's it's actually really cool that the names that are on there, and then it's got, like, their achievements underneath it, and uh, it's on the walkway into the factory. So anybody that steps into the factory, they've walked over the brick with my name on it, which is pretty cool. Like, it's it's right where you would look on the floor, walking up the sidewalk to the front door. So,
0: man, that's a, a yeah, that's amazing, and it it really cool for the employees of like, just a reminder of hey, this is why you come to work every day, and um, this is the the product you're making is, is going to be works. used in in an incredible way that um, really shapes anybody that consumes motorcycle riding around the world.
1: Yeah, it was cool. Like whenever when I went to Hinckley this year, because I I'd been there. Uh, Last year, just after we after we uh, had a chat and went and met the team and spoke with everybody, and I was still kind of a nobody when I went there, and everyone was like, ah, oh, good luck this year. Nobody expected me to do anything really, and they were like, eh, kid talks a big game, we'll see what he can do. And then I come back a year later, uh, celebrating my second Daytona 200 win, and in between, like, I had podiumed a couple times in the British Supersport Championship on the factory bike and pole position and was running at the front and um yeah just a lot of cool things happened in between when I first met everybody at the factory and then when I came back and that second time when I came back for for the ceremony and stuff everybody was like shocked that I kind of did what I was telling everybody I was gonna do they were like yeah we kind of doubted you a little bit but it turns out you're actually really good (laughs) I was like oh thanks
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and it's so funny to hear that um the year prior, you were telling everybody that that's what was going to happen because uh, one of my most vivid memories of you, and I have no idea if you recall this or not, but uh, in the hotel lobby the night before your most recent Daytona 200 win, um, I was hanging in the lobby with uh, a couple of my coworkers and it was just late. We were chatting. I have no idea what we were chatting about and it kind of surprised to see you because of like how late (laughs) it was. And and you just casually walked over to us and it, it was pretty unprompted, but you're just talking about the race the next day and you so casually described to us exactly how you're going to run your race and race and win yeah. like, yeah, I'm just going to hang in the back of the pack, you know, for, for most of the race, I don't need to be in front and that last lap, I know it really well. So I'll, I just need to be there. And then coming around this turn, you know, I, I'm going to ride his drift and, and I'll win it. And it was, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, it was, you know, some athletes, um, talk about just their vision and, and making things kind of come true just by yeah. seeing it and believing it and then saying it. And, and that's exactly what happened, but it wasn't cocky. It wasn't bragging. It was it like the, the way you said it is what really stood yeah, out.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, uh. I really believe in that kind of stuff. Like you speak your future into existence and you you kind of got to watch what you say sometimes, but I always try to keep it positive and I'm always thinking in a positive way and always thinking about winning races and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that nobody else probably really thinks about. But it's, uh, you can't just think about it. You got to say it sometimes and speak it and, and believe it. That's the biggest thing is believe in it and have faith in yourself and trust yourself and Sometimes it's hard to do, like, especially when you're sitting fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth on the grid, and you're like, I'm going to go win this. Everybody else is like, Yeah, right. Sure, you are, kid. But in my head, I already won it. And when you cross the line, you're like, I knew I was going to do it.
0: Well, it it helps that you've done it before. (laughs) Yeah. So, like,
1: obviously, I'd done it the first year, and um, that was like a huge relief doing it. Like, it felt like there was so much weight just lifted off my shoulders because I'd been telling people for months before that race, I'm going to go win the 200. I'm going to win the 200. And then to actually do it, it was like, Whoa, I did it. Like I've been talking about this for years since I was 10 years old, coming to Daytona to watch the races. I've been talking about winning it. So to go out and actually win, it was really special. And then the second year, I still, uh, I had some visions like that I kept seeing in my head and I would dream about it and sleep on it. And just overanalyzing everything really like in my own head before we even showed up to race. And I knew like I'm going to do this and this is how the race is going to play out and I'm going to win the race and it's going to be this pass and I'm going to do this and like I could see it and I think that's why like when it actually happened it yeah of course I was happy and I was excited but I didn't really uh I don't think I came across as amped as I was the first time I did it because it's almost like a not a numb feeling but a numb feeling you know like I've been there done that now and like obviously it's cool to win a race and it's so good to win it but I was kind of like, yeah, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. You it's know? supposed to happen. Yeah. It's yeah. like it, like I expected it. It's not like I won it and I was in shock that I had just won the race. It was like a, I knew I was going to do that, and it was like a confident thing. It was like I, I crossed the line and won the race, and I was like, yeah. Felt I knew, good about I it. it. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like a, oh, my God, I just won. That it just was, happened. Yeah. It was like a, I knew that was going to happen. I knew it was coming, and it was just a confident thing, and I crossed the line. I was like, yep, got that one. And it's funny how it works because, like I said, like I won it the the first year. Well, technically it was my second Daytona 200 that Uh, I won.
0: Right. So I was just going to ask that. So uh, the year prior to you winning it, how many years had you run it?
1: So my first one was the beginning of 2019. Um, I was in second place with four laps to go. They red flagged it and restarted it. And I wound up finishing fifth. But I was in the absolute perfect position to get a draft pass to the line. And then uh, the next year, 2020, we qualified and they canceled the race. So technically, I've done it three times and won it twice. But had there not been a red flag, I fully believe I would have won it three times. And that would be three in a row. So
0: so then it, for your first time ever doing it, how did you sort of develop your strategy? Because now you've done it a few times and you've kind of proven your strategy. But yeah, how did you develop it for your first time and it seemed like it was is working.
1: Yeah, like my my first year doing it, I I was coming in as like a young 18-year-old kid, no experience on a 600. I was racing 250cc single cylinders in England for 2 years, so I come in with basically no experience, never raced the 200 before, never done any kind of endurance race on a big bike, just kind of winging it, but I was with a team that had finished second three years previous. So I knew it was a good team. I knew the bike was fast. I know I'm fast. I believe in myself. And uh, I showed up and I was kind of like, all right, we'll play it slow, build up all weekend, just keep going faster, 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 learn throughout practice. And yeah, you find yourself there in the race. And I'm not dumb, you know, I raced little bikes my whole life. I know how the draft works and I'm confident in my abilities. I've always been confident. And yeah, you just, put yourself in the right spot and at the end of the race when you're there you know you can do it so um it was a lot of hours of studying the 200 before i did it
0: yeah because it seemed i mean so that but or that track or that race it it is all about the draft do a lot of other racers underestimate that
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of them just don't understand how it works like they've never like look at josh hayes for example he's 50 years old, however old he is. And yeah, okay, he's got a lot of experience, but on a super bike where the draft doesn't really make as big of a difference. And you just, you kind of forget about it and you don't really think about it as much when you're not experiencing it daily. Like I lived, I lived having to draft for a living for three years, you know, three, four years. So for me, it was one of those things like once I learned it, it never left my brain. Like I've ingrained drafting people into my mind and, I just understand it and I have a good grasp on like what position you need to be in, how far back you can be, how, like just all the little nuances that go into making a perfect draft pass. I've kind of learned over the years and I've not forgotten it.
0: And so actually, uh, this will be a, a good benefit to me. And then uh, a lot of the listeners that are not, uh, actual racers. So is there that the bikes you rode kind of coming up you're almost describing it as those are more apt to the draft than certain bikes
1: yeah so like on anything that's smaller like 250s and 300s and 400s even now because the the junior cup class has kind of evolved into a, a basically a 400 class where when I first was coming up there was no 400s it was 250s so I learned on the 250s and went to the KTM 390 and won that championship and then I went to Europe and I was racing 250cc single cylinders motor three bikes and they only go so fast, you know what I mean? So especially me being a bigger guy, I had to understand how to work the draft at a younger age than most people anyways. And, um, you learn how to suck yourself into the draft because you pick up another five, seven miles an hour on, on the, uh, straights if you're sucking yourself into the draft. So I noticed that at a young age and kind of perfected it over sort of five years. And, um, yeah, you just kind of, understand that on these little bikes and being a big guy, like you kind of learn where you can pick up extra mile an hour at, and that's a good spot to do it. Okay.
0: That, no, that, so that makes sense. Um, could I can picture a draft certainly in, in a car. Um, but you're, you're not contained within a vehicle. You're actually, your body is experiencing the draft itself. Like, what does that feel like?
1: yeah so um it depends like if you're in the front, if you're leading and somebody's drafting you, you can kind of feel them behind you like you can feel the wind pulling you backwards almost, and little things like if if your leathers are a bit loose, you can feel it flapping a little bit or you can just feel it feels like it's sucking you backwards almost, and I'm sure that's what the guys that I've been drafting to the line of Daytona feel when i'm coming around them they they probably know like somebody's drafting me right now because you can feel the wind. It just, it's like a suction tunnel. Like it just sucks you backwards almost. And you don't lose mile an hour from it, but the guy behind you's gaining mile an hour. So, um, and when you're in the draft, you don't, you don't really even notice it, to be honest. Like, uh, it's, it's a strange feeling really. Like, you're just getting sucked into the draft, and you start picking up mile an hour, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to run into the back of this guy." Like, okay,
0: so so you feel it in the speed. I I, I was kind of yeah. curious if if you feel any sens- sort of sensation of like being pulled.
1: Yeah, it's actually uh, it's interesting. It's like it you feel the opposite of what the guy in front of you feels. Really, like you feel like something's like pulling you forward. It's it's strange, but. You don't like necessarily notice it like in like a physical kind of way, but you can see it like it's a visual thing, I guess, for me. Where like you notice that you're closing so fast on the guy in front of you, and you're like, "Whoa, oh, I gotta like swerve out yeah. of the way, otherwise you're gonna run into him."
0: So then, as soon as you're out of the draft, how long can you like carry the the benefit of it?
1: That's the thing. So when you draft somebody, it's not just about being behind the person and then pull out of the draft. You gotta. Really make sure that your tuck is on point, like you got your elbows in, you got your knees in, your shoulders are on the tank, your toes aren't sticking out in the wind, you got to make sure that your body is as aerodynamic as you can be, otherwise you're going to pull out of the draft, and then, yeah, okay, you just made five miles an hour on the guy, especially if it's a smaller guy, you pull out of the draft and your toes are sticking out, well, now you're just defeating the purpose of just running up on the back of the guy, because you already couldn't pass him anyways, because he's 20 pounds lighter, and now you got your toes sticking out in the wind, slowing you down, so... Yeah. I mean, every, every little thing, especially around Daytona adds up and the aerodynamics and the draft is so important. So important.
0: So then, um, so let's, this is funny. I, I, this is kind of the, the meat of, um, part of the conversation I wanted to have with you and we're just jumping right into it, but we're there. So let's go ahead and do it. Um, so that last lap was actually the first lap and the last lap, uh, for, for me, two laps in... I led. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, as a, uh, certainly in my role with, with triumph, I mean, those were incredibly exciting, uh, laps. So if, if anybody hasn't seen the race, Moto America uh, does have the race in its entirety on their YouTube channel. Yep. Um, so I encourage you to go check it out and Watch the whole thing. It's a there's a lot that unfolded over the course of the race, but uh, a Daytona 200 is a pretty long,
1: fifty eight laps race. Yeah.
0: So if you're going to watch, if you're going to nitpick, watch the first and the last lap. Yeah. So,
1: um, my very first year, 2019, I led 38 laps out of the 58 and didn't win the race. Um, the next year, I led two laps, won the race, set the fastest lap on the last lap, won the race this year, I led the first lap. There was a few laps in the middle that I led, but it was because I was in that lead group and a couple of people pulled off for fuel and I stayed out. So I led three laps maybe in the middle of the race and then I didn't lead another lap until the last lap crossing the line. So yeah, you don't need to lead others. It's, all... it's
0: not about leading laps. It's no. about winning and the race.
1: And... Honestly, collecting these paychecks race and you want to lead the least amount of time and put in the least amount of effort to win the race. So um, for me, like Obviously, it's a little bit uh, less comfortable winning the race by point zero zero seven of a second, but um, yeah,
0: it was so <laughs> close. Like in the in the pits, I mean, everybody was going insane, but we were still questioning ourselves: like, did he? Did he? Did like? Because it was it was that close, and we knew you had the momentum, but yeah, we just weren't sure if you had like who crossed the line first. It was, uh, yeah. I mean, as a spectator, really exciting.
1: I think it was only half a tenth from me in first to Sheridan Marais in third so yeah, it, was it was only point zero five yeah. from first to third and then only another half a tenth from th- third to fourth so it was really close and I think the year before when I won it it was a l- little bit more of a margin it might have been 0.01 instead of point zero zero seven. so I've won it really close two years in a row like um just from putting myself in the right spot in the draft and I did it a little bit different both years like the first year was only me and one other guy then this year was me and three other guys and I outsmarted all of them. So um. well, the, uh,
0: yeah. So kind of kn- knowing what your strategy was, um, uh, you know, s- sitting there in the pits at, at the start of the first lap and then really in the middle of the, fr- or sorry, uh, middle of the last lap, like this is where you knew what you were doing, but I was like, Oh, I know what he wants to do come on are you gonna actually when are you gonna do it when are you gonna do it
1: (laughs) it was definitely questionable even me watching the race back both years me winning the race watching it back coming out of barrel corner up on a nascar one two i look like i'm too far back and then i come out of the chicane and you're like still a little bit far back but he's close and then coming out of nascar three four and you're like all right (laughs) he's there he's in the draft and like I don't know. It's it's definitely a little bit more difficult to outsmart like this year outsmarting three guys that one of them is a top 3 guy in superbike week in week out. One of them's a four-time superbike champion and one of them is a world endurance rider. So they're all smart dudes, like they're not yeah. they're no dummies. They've they've all won races, they've all won championships and they know what they're doing and to be able to outsmart those three guys, I was the only one in that group that's ever won a 200 out of all four of us. Hayes won one and he got disqualified, so it's uh it's kind of cool like being against people that are at that caliber of riding and still being able to kind of like weasel my way around them on the last lap of a of really big race is really cool. <laughs> yeah,
0: and run your race. I yeah. mean that's uh, yeah. And like I said though, it was like halfway through that lap I'm like, when's he gonna start doing it? Come on, man! dude. <laughs> yeah, and
1: that's the thing, people. I think because Daytona's the first round of the year and everybody gets super antsy, and I show up just calm and like i know i know uh how to do the job i know what i gotta do i know uh i know everything about that race and i put a lot of time and effort into preparing for it i i put my whole like mind on that race for months and i show up just relaxed and if i win i win if i don't win i tried like i know that daytona is one of those races where anything can go wrong like you could run out of fuel you could have a faulty tire and crash from from your tire blowing up. Like there's so, Eslick's done that. Like well, coming yeah, down the it, banking and- you had a tire that, that collapsed on him. And like anything can happen. An engine can blow up. Like somebody can run into you. It's such a long race. Anything can happen. You can have a, a five minute pit stop like Sam Lockoff this year. Like there's so many variables, especially because the two hundred's a team a team effort. It's not a it's not a one man race. So Yeah.
0: Is that the only race of your season that you have pits?
1: Yeah, that's our only race of the year with Pit Stop. Um, but Sheridan Marais, who got third, he races the World Endurance Series. So he does like 24-hour Le Mans, 24-hour like He does all these races where he flew his whole team over from World Endurance, and they have a lot of endurance practice because they do a Pit Stop every hour. So for 24 hours, multiple times a year.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a lot of practice. and But then a lot of the teams...
1: This is it. They yeah. they do
0: it one time a year, and
1: yeah. So like our team TOBC, we uh, I got lucky because a lot of people on the team have done Daytona before. They they've all experienced it, whether it's with Danny or whoever it's with. You know, they've all done it and they understand how it works and they kind of know how to keep themselves relaxed. And that's the biggest thing, like keeping everybody's heads level throughout the whole race and through the pit stops. And like, I came in for my second pit stop expecting a tire or at least a rear tire, we didn't change anything. They fueled the bike and sent me back out. And in my head, I was like, this is a disaster. We're not going to win. I have no tire. I'm going to have no grip at the end of the race. This is terrible. And, uh, it worked. Like you kind of got to trust the people that work around you. And I was skeptical for sure after the second pit stop, but I mean, it, it, worked out in our favor thank god yeah
0: well and then i mean watching the the difference of the teams that swap tires that versus just refuel and it's a big difference in time
1: you save about seven to ten seconds on the pit stop and we hadn't spoke about it before the race of whether or not we were going to skip a tire at the end of the race we were just we're like yeah yeah we're going to come in do the pit stop go whatever so i was like the lap that i was coming in i i had the thing spinning like up onto the banking in the nascar one and i was like oh Good thing I'm coming in and getting a rear tire right now. And I came in, and everybody was just looking at me. Nobody said anything. Nobody was like, do you want a tire? Nobody said anything. They were just looking at me. And then the guy starts putting the fuel in like a couple seconds after he was looking at me. Nobody said anything. And I was like, what's going on? Is somebody going to do tire? And they're like, no tire, get on and go. And I was like, oh, no, this isn't good. <laughs>
0: well, oh, yeah, because you have to get off, right? Yeah, that, that's one to get of the rules is that when, the,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I guess it's a safety thing, but you have to get off the bike when fueling and any, whenever anybody's touching the bike. So the previous years you had to uh, either be fueling or be working on the bike. This year you could fuel and change tires at the same time where before it would have to be like, we would come in, pull the wheels, fuel, and that would give the guys that pulled the wheels a second to just quick, make sure everything's good to go. As soon as the fuel tank comes off the bike, put the wheels and then go. Well, like, now you can do everything at once, and the Ducati has a single-sided swing arm. So, they go in, rear tire's on in four seconds. They're done putting the rear wheel on before they even fuel the bike. Yeah. Because it takes seven seconds for the fuel to get into the bike. So, there's little things like that, that, like, if he didn't run out of fuel, he would have been tough to beat just because of the pit stops. Like, the guy's not a better rider than anybody, but they have... It's six more advantage. seconds, yeah. yeah. They have six more seconds saved off their pit stops times two. That's 12 seconds, you know? So
0: then one of my other most memorable moments from that race uh, is actually the team next to us. And and most of the teams there, they're like good um, good teams with, with good support. Um, but it was a, a pretty diverse group of teams and racers. And, and the team next to us stood out because... They were a small team. And I mean, maybe I, I think they were family. And the racer himself got off his bike, grabbed the fuel can and fueled his own bike.
1: Yeah, I don't remember who was pitted next to us, but the two hundred is a very uh very mixed grid. Like you have that Ducati team who's on a probably a two million dollar budget for the season, and then you have somebody who's just pulled up can barely afford the tires for the weekend and is just having fun and doesn't really care where they finish. Yeah. I don't, know?
0: I don't think they did any tire swaps. <laughs> and, and like I said, the racer was grabbing his own fuel and it was just, it, it was cool to see that side by side. And like, it, it was just cool that he was there. Right. Yeah. Cause this is a massive race. Yep. Uh, but even as a small, like small team, small operation, um he could be there
1: yeah well like this year you had to actually qualify and was within 110 percent or 107 percent of heron's poll time so being within that lap time around daytona that's pretty good like just to qualify as fast because we're i'm pretty sure he broke the lap record this year in qualifying so it's uh not easy to qualify when we're breaking lap records and, and everybody's right. going fast but then years previous, um, because the 200 wasn't technically a pro race the past few years, um, there was no cutoff time, so they accepted everybody. So there was one year we had, like, 70 people on the grid, and the, the the like, last five guys, we would lap them in three laps, and we're like, what are you guys doing here? Like, it's not safe at that point, you know? Like, every three laps, you're lapping the same couple of guys, and and you got a lead pack of 15 guys that are all fighting for whatever it is to win the race twenty five grand plus a Rolex, you know what I mean? So everybody wants to win. You got these same three guys that you're lapping every three laps, and you're just somebody's gonna run into them because mistakes happen and everybody's trying to trying to get a gap on the next guy. So if there's a sketchy spot to pass, you're gonna go for it. It's Daytona. Everybody wants to win. To, yeah. You have to go for it. And that happens like it back in the day, Aaron Yates, he was when he was leading the two hundred with a few laps to go and ran into a back marker like ran into a lapper with a couple laps to go and he was leading the race like you're always going to go for it and take the risk because the prize is good and and that's the one race that everybody wants to win is the 200 so it's a big one yeah and so now you got two (laughs) uh
0: only wearing one watch today though
1: yeah no i i decided this year because i've been wearing the first watch for over a year now and, and i ride my pit bike with it on i ride my bicycle with it on sometimes like I kind of do everything with it, so I'm keeping the other one pretty new. But I plan on having a few more in the next few years and have a, a nice little Rolex collection is is my plan. That'll be cool.
0: <laughs> Actually, um, I'm going to really space on this, even though it, did, it only happened recently. But somebody recently approached me about collaborations, and your name was brought up with, like, hey, would, would Brandon do something with this other watch brand? I'm like, well... I don't think that makes sense. Like, it, it, even though like the Rolex isn't a sponsor, you're just you have an association with yeah. that brand just from winning yeah this I've race been, a few times.
1: You know, I uh, I noticed that Breitling has a collaboration with Triumph, and I was trying to push my way into the door on that just because I like high end things. Yeah. You know, like once you get a couple nice things, you're like, man, I, this feels good. I got some nice totally. stuff now. You know what I mean? So I was trying to work my way in on that too. And I mean, there's only there's only so much you can do, but yeah, the Rolex thing is cool. And it is funny that people like, people see me and they're always like, where's the Rolex? Where's the Rolex? It's such an association. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned the, uh, I learned the, the wise words from Danny Eslick. Now I can say which one (laughs) (laughs) everybody asks him like, where's his Rolex? And he goes, which one every time. So Uh, funny. Good to be able to say that. Uh, Eslick when he won a couple of the races, he he got the winner watch, but A couple years before that, they used to do the watch for pole position. So the pole position watch was a full stainless steel Rolex Daytona, which is actually now worth more than my two-tone golden steel. So he's got two of the steel, the full stainless steel ones. And then he's got a couple of the the two-tone ones from winning the race, which is pretty cool. But I'm actually a little bit jealous. I I have two of the same watch now. I'd like them to change it up. Maybe next year, give us a solid gold one or a stainless steel one or something.
0: Well, yeah, that'd be... They should at, yeah, at least especially a, if
1: I win, if I win a third one, they should like, give me the opportunity to like trade it in for something else. Or, you know, I think, cause I, I having think that's three, a
0: pretty fair request.
1: Yeah, yeah. Having three of the same watch, like, yeah, it's cool. Cause it's a Rolex Daytona and it's engraved and it's a, a winner's watch. So the value is not bad, but
0: yeah, like, actually, so are, are there details on it about the race?
1: Uh, yeah. So on the back, like this one that I'm wearing on the back, it says, uh, Daytona 200 champion 2021, but this is a COVID watch. So, um, this was actually the watch for the 2020 race that never happened. Oh. So the back got re engraved, which, uh, I don't know if that adds value or takes value away, but, um, interesting. Yeah. My it, other watch they just hung on to it. Yeah. Because the, the second watch that I won says race winner, not champion. It says like, uh, Daytona 200 race winner, 2022. This one says Daytona 200 champion, 2021. So I'm pretty sure that this is the watch from the previous year because also the engraving is a little bit different. Like the the font and the, the depth and everything is a little bit different than the, than the other one that I want. So
0: so we'll, we'll look at next year's and see what it is really supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So
1: <laughs> now we'll, we'll have to get the third one so that we can compare all three and see which one's correct.
0: <laughs> yeah. So then um, you were saying before, if, if that were to happen, uh, and certainly we, we all hope it does, that would be a record in itself
1: yeah so um nobody's ever done three in a row Eslick had a good opportunity to do three in a row and had some events happen and he, he didn't he wasn't able to do three in a row um scott russell nearly had three in a row crashed i'm pretty sure or the one year he went to he went to europe or something and skipped the race after he won two in a row and like just strange like strange things that have always kept somebody from doing three in a row where they'll get two and then they go to come back for the third year and they crash or bike breaks or just it, it's so hard to win yeah, three in a row happen, like yeah. daytona is such a anything can happen place that even winning two in a row is kind of an anomaly like there's only a handful of guys that have ever done it so i think there's maybe three or five guys that have ever done it well,
0: or even multi-time winners so is the i think there's a few guys tied for most wins with four
1: Russell has five, I think. There is one. I want to say Scott Russell's got five, and I think uh, somebody else has five as well. Um, Scott Russell, and I want to say it's like Miguel Duhamel or somebody has five. Okay. I
0: I know that was uh, like the the storyline for the TOBC team this year was incredible, no matter what, because it's either you with. Uh, back-to-back. back-to-backs or or danny getting put fifth. in that rare air with number five yeah, yeah. so
1: if if eslick would have won his fifth that would have equaled the most ever um and then me getting my second back my uh yeah my back-to-back wins is a it's a difficult accomplishment and also like for me i'm still young as well like i don't think scott russell won his first daytona until he was like 25 i want to say right so- and I won my first one at 20, uh 19 19, 19 yeah. and then I won this one at 20. So if I win the next one it'll be 21 when I win it. So I'm still uh I got some time on my side to be able to be the most winningest Daytona 200 rider.
0: <laughs> and you said 19 was a record?
1: Yeah, so 19 is the youngest to ever do it on the asphalt track and then somebody I forget I forget the name. I should know the name, but um, somebody won it on the dirt track in like the 60s uh, at 18. So I consider you
0: have an asterisk next to your
1: record. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I think it's kind of silly because the, the, I mean, it's a different race. Yeah. It's pretty much a completely different race. And on the asphalt track, I'm the, I think I'm the youngest and the third youngest to ever win it on asphalt and like the second and fourth youngest outright. So it's pretty cool. Like I'm still young and I still got time on my side and whether or not I get three in a row and or not, like I can still come back and do it again and, and give it a couple more attempts and, and try to beat that number five record. I know from two to five, this, I still got three more to win. So yeah, there's time and, and, uh, when I'm not going to say I'm going to win five in a row, but three in a row is definitely doable. And if I win three in a row, why can't I win four in a row? Well, you can keep
0: it going. I mean, yeah. it, you have a lot of years of racing ahead of you. Basically it's, it's as long as you want to keep doing it. And, yeah. and you've been racing, um, almost your whole life, right?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I started racing Moto America, which is technically pro in 2015, I believe. So I would have been 14. Um, did a couple of races my first year and did a couple races in Europe that year as well. And then the next year, 2016 was my first full season. I was 15, won my first Moto America title. And, uh, it's actually still my only Moto America title, unfortunately, <laughs> but, um, yeah, kind of bounced around. I've been racing a long time now professionally and, in Europe and, and in America. I'm the only rider to, from America to win a British national championship ever in the British Superbikes. Um, only American rider to ever qualify for the Junior World Championship Moto3. Only American rider to ever race a MotoGP Moto3 race. Like I've been stacking up some some statistics, and, I mean, not that I think that I deserve more credit than I've got, but I think a lot of people just don't even realize some of the stuff that I've done. Well, you y-
0: yeah, you if you spent most of your career abroad um, – yeah. Yeah, you, it's just a different path. That's doing the thing. It, like
1: so. I come home and everybody like 2020 and I came home from racing in Europe and I'd been gone for three years and it was like everybody forgot about me. I come back and nearly won my first ever super sport race and everybody's like, oh, you're, that's amazing. Your first ever race and blah, I'm like, man, I've been racing at a high level for the past three years and you guys don't even know about it. Like it's just crazy how how fast people forget. Like from 2016 when I won my first title, and then moving, basically moving to Europe by myself at 15 years old and racing over there for three, four years, like everybody kind of forgot about me a little bit. And I came back and right away was right to the front and, and everybody remembered pretty quick, but
0: yeah. So then, and so here's, uh, I'm going to just apologize right now. If, if we are covering some of the same topics, the last time we interviewed, uh, e- even though for listeners, it's a week apart, uh, yeah. for Brandon and I, it's, uh, a year and a half apart, but um, so then when when you after the first Daytona win, you went over and did a season of british superbike uh but by that time, living in Europe and racing in Europe is normal for
1: you yeah, yeah, no I, and the thing is with like when I first went over to Europe, I met a a really great family, and I wound up staying with one of my good friends and and living with his family and it was kind of like uh an easier transition because as a young kid like Going over there by yourself, living alone is not really fun. you don't have any friends, you don't have a car, you don't have bikes, you don't have your family, you don't have your dogs. you know what I mean like you you're kind of just out there on your own doing your own thing and um this past year when I went back twenty 2020, twenty or twenty twenty one sorry um I went by myself, I lived by myself all year, still didn't really have many friends there, didn't have a car like it was kind of miserable really, like being alone all the time and mm-hmm especially getting hurt like the injuries by yourself in another country not really knowing anybody not having any help like i slept on the couch over there for two weeks because i couldn't put the sheets back on my bed so I, oh, man. yeah like little things like that that people don't even think about you know
0: yeah what, what was your injury by the way
1: See, it was just a broken wrist I, I had a screw put in my right wrist but i uh the apartment that i was in was i had all my bicycles and everything in there and the bed was so crowded but i couldn't like I just couldn't grab things, you know, I don't know. Cause I also had a, a left wrist injury at the same time. Oh, I didn't boy. break anything, but it was like pretty You're sore inflamed. Yeah. yeah. It was really sore. I've actually thought that I broke my left wrist and not my right wrist. And when I went to the hospital, they were like, no, you broke your right wrist and your left wrist is whatever, sprained, strained, whatever. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of a miserable couple of weeks, laying on the couch by I myself. <laughs>
0: what was uh, we, so when you were over there this most recent time? What was kind of home base for you? Like, what what part of England?
1: Uh, Loughborough. So, all right, I have it, no idea where that is. You're it's gonna have about to... fifteen minutes from Derby, which is twenty minutes from Donington Park. So, right in the Midlands. Um, I was cycling all the time. Just uh, yeah. And live,
0: live and, and then is that um, pretty close to where the team was? Is that why you?
1: there no um i only moved there because it was the cheapest apartment i could find and uh and it was close ish to where i was staying previously in derby that's where my friend and his family stays in derby so i uh i figured don't move too far from there be kind of close to a train station just in case something really bad happens and then uh and it was cheap so (laughs) we got to watch the budget we're racing motorcycles professionally not playing soccer so um yeah it was just a interesting little place a small town and uh <laughs> yeah it was very different from living where i live in new jersey oh i bet
0: yeah well yeah and anywhere there outside of london is is pretty rural
1: yeah and honestly like that was my first time fully living by myself for that long and also having to keep myself like training and eating and like you forget to eat you don't want to make food <laughs> don't like cleaning up i'm Nineteen year old kid, twenty year old kid, you know, like uh, yeah, I'm not not a uh, super grown up. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and then uh, so I don't know. I'm gonna ask you kind of what is the regiment, and maybe this is where it, it things differ significantly from team sports, where like team sports, you're people are telling you what to do all the time. So when you're on a team for a full season, what what do you what happens in between races? Is there organized team activities? Is there like a trainer that's working with you, or are you kind of on your own?
1: Uh, For me, like, I'm kind of on my own, Um, especially this year, racing in Moto America again. I'm on my own. I'm training myself again. And it's a little bit more difficult because you got to be very disciplined and make yourself do the work. There's nobody there telling you, like, you got to do this, you got to do this, which is what I've had my whole career. I've always had somebody there telling me what to do, when to do it, and and how to eat, and training, and gym stuff, and cycling, running, and all this stuff. And when I was living in England, I, I hired a trainer. Uh, spent a lot of my own money actually just to uh to have somebody that I could go and work out with four days a week five days a week and have somebody there to kind of advise me on okay today you need a rest day today you need to do that like just to kind of push me and and also not let me get kind of just sucked into the whole laying on the couch watching Netflix every day because I'm by myself in a foreign country and it's raining and it's cold out and I don't have a car and I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that and it's nice to get a phone call that that's from your trainer and says, Hey dummy, get your ass to the gym. You know what I mean? Like having somebody to motivate you a little bit more, like not that I really need it. Cause I always want to win races and I'm pretty hungry for it, but just having that like extra person there to kind of talk to and, and push you a little bit harder in the gym and watch you and make sure you're doing your stuff right. It, it does make a big difference.
0: Yeah. Well, it's accountability. Yeah. And, um, there's certainly been, uh, times in kind of my athletic career where, um, I mean, so I'd, uh, competed in martial arts, so I'd, there'd be scheduled practices, uh, but you still kind of need to work out outside of that. Yeah. And, um, I, I've often find just going to the gym is the hardest part. And then once you're there, you kind of, yeah. you know what to do and all right, well, I'm here, I'm going to work out. But, uh, so th- even that I, I'd found myself like booking trainers because at a minimum then I have. I have a a commitment. I've, I've booked somebody else's time and like, I I don't want to waste their time. And, and so
1: for me, honestly, a lot of it too was like just having another friend over there, like having somebody that I could talk to and go to and like go ride mountain bikes with and bicycles and hang out with. And he kind of took me under his wing. So it was like having a like paying for a friend, (laughs) you know, like as goofy as that sounds like, uh, yeah, you got to have that person and then for me like when I was racing over there and struggling and not having any good results and really being miserable and upset like going to the gym and and the cycling and the running and the training stuff that was what became fun for me. I started to like not even really enjoy racing at some points and just really enjoy the the work behind the racing. I mean that that comes and goes. Sometimes you're yeah. going to be miserable when you when you don't do well at what you're getting paid to do. So
0: so, I mean, prior to that season, had you had any really tough seasons like that?
1: Honestly, like my career has been fairly smooth. Like I've always had really good results. I've, I've tried to keep the injuries to a minimum. And I mean, so from winning my championship in 2016 in Moto America, then I went, uh, 2017 did some super Sport stuff in America, lost my ride, was bouncing around team to team in BSB, just living over there, 16 years old don't really know anybody. I'm just looking for rides every weekend, trying to figure out what bike I can ride this weekend and where I can go and what track I can be at. And that year I raced like four different series on like seven different bikes. And (laughs) that was a really difficult year for me just because I didn't do one full season. Um, the next year I got a ride in the moto three class over there in BSB and, uh, everything was going good. started strong. First, first race was a podium. And then all year I was kind of fifth, fourth right around there fighting for that. And, uh, started finding some form at the end of the year and shattered my left wrist and missed the last four races and f- still ended fifth in the championship. So I've not really had any years where I've been outside the top five in a full season that I've ever raced. So like 2016 champion, 2017 didn't race full series, 2018 fifth, 2019 champion, 2020 third in super sport. And then last year, I, th- I might've been outside the top five last year. I don't even remember, but again, I missed a couple of races due to injury. So, um, yeah, any, anything that I've done a full year in or close to a full year, I've always been in the top five. And for me going in like my first couple of races last year, I was outside the top five, just struggling, miserable, felt like people weren't listening to what I was saying. And, um, those are the times that you need that trainer there to say, Hey, you're doing what you can do. You, you got to trust yourself and know that what you're doing is right and and this is our training program we've done it for years we've never had any problems like you're doing the right things you're checking all the boxes it's just it's not clicking at the moment you know and having somebody there to kind of tell you that and explain that to you while while you're pissed off a couple thousand miles from home and can't uh can't complain to your family about what's going on you you kind of need it it's it's a very underrated thing i think
0: yeah that's uh I, I was just, you sort of express it, but I was curious then. Yeah. What, if you've always had success, what does it feel like when you don't? And It's so and kind hard. Of how do you push past that?
1: And, it's really difficult. And again, this year, like I stepped up another class. Now I'm in stock thousand and super bike class and I have not got the results this year that I'm used to. I've been six, fifth, six. Well, I haven't even finished in the top five yet this year. And we're half over halfway through the year. Not even been in the top five, and it's uh, it's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's upsetting. It's yeah, a lot of negativity, and and just not what I'm used to. I'm I'm a front running dude. Like I'm I'm a championship rider. I'm I'm a podium contender. I'm all these things that are are really good. I am supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be a seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth place guy. I feel like I should be fighting for wins.
0: What um, it, as you sort of go uh in different classes of bikes and regardless of you know uh you know, manufacturer or style of bike I, I i imagine that there's nuances to the class what sort of feels different about the different classes
1: yeah so for me i've always been a little bike guy i've always been on the 250s and the 300s and stuff like that and it was only 2020 was my first year ever on a 600 2021 i had my second year on a 600 but in another series On another manufacturer on different tires different tracks then this year 2022 i come back home again different tires different manufacturer a couple new tracks and a completely different style of riding so um the 600 you can kind of get away with riding it like a little bike you can roll through the corners pretty fast and still get a good drive off the corner and and make it work you can make that style work the 1000 you can't make a little bike style work on a big bike it just doesn't work it doesn't like it the bike doesn't want to do it you cannot roll through the corners as fast you can't keep the bike turning if you do and um wrapping my head around how to slow myself down in the corner get the bike turned and then go has been the most difficult thing i didn't even i didn't think it would be a challenge at all i was like you know what i can ride anything i've always been able to ride anything and i'll be sweet and I, i just haven't been able to like Pick up the style yet, which is confusing for me because I feel like I'm really good at adapting and figuring out what bikes like. And um yeah, I don't know it's it's been difficult. Like like I said, the whole stop and then turn the bike and go it it's uh, one of those things. Like when you're trying to learn it and uh, you like over exaggerate it. I over exaggerated it to the max at the beginning of the year, just like slowing down too much and then turning the bike and then trying to carry too much corner speed and then braking too late. And just my timing was all off.
0: And then it is so kind of what you're describing is, is the reason you have to make that adjustment is, is when you step up to the 1000s is the bike itself, just carrying that much more momentum into the corner. And that's why you yeah. can't treat it like a smaller,
1: lighter bike. Exactly. So, I mean, the bike one, it's heavy. Um, and like, from what my crew chief says to me all the time, the crank is another seven pounds or whatever it is and pulling that weight from left to right or getting that weight to stop going into a corner is much more difficult and getting the bike to turn is more difficult so you kind of got to use your tools a bit differently like it's the same tools it's a motorcycle with two wheels it's got an engine in it and for me they're all the same but there is a certain way to ride it and yeah like you can't um you can't expect a bike that's going 180 miles an hour down the straightaway to turn like a bike that's going 150, it's just not going to be the same. It's not going to stop the same. It's not going to accelerate the same. And it's something that I've had to force myself to learn. It's not easy.
0: Yeah. No, that, that that's interesting. And well, um, it, we've gotten like way more technical than I uh, and planned <laughs> to get, but, um, I, I, by nature, I have just a lot of questions. And, um, so it's cool to learn from you, Uh, really not only kind of your approach to racing, but even then some of these nuances of styles of racing and strategy and and the way bikes work.
1: So we're showing up to the races with no testing, no practice time, no coach to teach me how to ride the bike. We're going straight into race scenario, trying to learn a new style on a new bike with new team, new tires, new tracks. And we're going straight into the races just like, Ah, all right, we're we're gonna try this, we're gonna try that. And teaching yourself something new in a scenario where you have to go one hundred percent wide open is so difficult because you fall back into your old habits, you're doing the wrong thing, but you're trying so hard and uh you're just trying hard in the wrong areas is what I've been doing. So going into a race scenario, basically like trying super hard, doing the wrong things and and not having really anybody explain to me what I'm doing wrong or be able to really help me it was really difficult. And then my manager just flew over for the last race, watched me for one session. And he's like, yeah, you got to do this, this, and this changed it in the next session, instantly a second and a half faster. And now I'm fighting inside the top five. And I'm like, that was it. That was all I had to change. You gotta <laughs> it's, always, be kidding it's always the little things. Me. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's stupid little things that you overlook or, not even that I overlook it it's just that I don't know it so it's hard to make yourself do something that you don't know you know you got to yeah. have somebody to teach you or figure out how to learn it from somewhere
0: well it's so funny enough um going back to the the Daytona win uh, that was a similar scenario where uh I, I think the first time you laid eyes on a bike was a Monday and yep. maybe got to testing on a Tuesday
1: yeah so we uh <laughs> we actually I didn't even see the bikes Monday night but I saw pictures early in the morning on Tuesday of the bikes with some lights in the parking lot getting stickered up and getting the last couple parts put on them before we went testing for our one-day test at uh, Roebling Road in Georgia the Tuesday of the race. So we went Tuesday testing, drove all, like, afternoon to Daytona, had Wednesday of uh, the bikes were on the Dinos. Um, Thursday was setup day at the track. And media day, all that stuff, and then Friday's practice. So we kind of we had a pretty busy week, but from Monday until the next Monday, it was like nonstop, just something going on twenty four seven.
0: Well, and then uh, on top of that, that race was the first time that new gen of bike was ever allowed in a race. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure there was complications, just or just intricacies due to that of even working with the race organizers of. Yeah, testing dude. the bikes to make sure they were to the pre-negotiated spec and things like that
1: yeah that was another tricky thing throughout the weekend they're changing our throttle every time we go out because it's it's fly by wire so it's not a cable that connects the throttle to the carburetor or whatever you know it's not carbureted but you know what i mean and uh it's it's all electronic so now you have a guy that's trying to regulate our bike the ducati with the Yamahas and the Cowie and and get everybody's bike as even as possible. And every time we go on a track, we're having a different percentage of throttle. So, um, it's really hard to calculate your fuel consumption and mileage because if you go out in the first practice and it's got 85% throttle, then you go out in the next one and it's got 80% and then in the race, it's got 90%. Well, now you're using who knows how many more liters for each pit stop, you know what I mean? So calculating the fuel was super tricky i I don't know about for the other teams, but definitely for us because we kept having our throttle position change so when you're ninety percent throttle for fifty eight laps around Daytona, which is two hundred miles, you're gonna burn a little bit more fuel than you would if you were at eighty percent throttle for two hundred miles so um yeah little little things like that that they've thrown us off all week you know we we uh still were kind of able to find a baseline and still able to pull it off which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, all things considered it's uh pretty remarkable the results that <laughs> that we are able to pull off and uh, you and the team were able to pull off so.
1: Yeah, it was uh I don't think nobody was really expecting me. This is, I was saying it before the race. I don't think anybody expects me to win. I don't think anybody is is looking at me as even a contender. And I'm coming in as the reigning champ and everybody's looking at me like, ah, oh, you're in fifth place, you're in fourth place, whatever. You're not yeah. going to win." And I love that because That takes all the pressure off of me. And then guys like Heron, who's on pole position, everybody expects him to win on a factory Ducati on pole position. And then you got, like, last year's Superbike champ, Jake Gagne, on the front row. He's expected to do well. You got the other factory, Yamaha, Cam Peterson. He's expected to do well. Nobody even remembers me by the time they get back to row two. (laughs) They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he won the race last year. forgot about him. Oops. Yeah, and then I win the race, and they're like, oh, we knew it, we knew it. I'm like... Uh, you didn't mention me before the race no. don't lie <laughs> or or
0: or the mention yeah i was reading uh some of the coverage that there was some like by obligation of well and you can't count out
1: yeah, last year's winning exactly but still, it wasn't the, like there was a, a
0: focus on a lot of those other guys
1: yeah it wasn't a uh we think he's got a shot to win it was well, we can't count him out because he did win it. Like, yeah. They weren't really expecting me to do well. I don't think like the commentators, even the series, I don't think expected me to win. So you look at the uh, Moto America has a, an internet series that they do behind the scenes of all the races. But you would think that they would follow the previous year's champion throughout the race weekend. They followed Heron, they followed Gagne, they followed Cam Peterson and somebody else. Not one video of me in there other than me crossing the finish line.
0: Man, that's crazy because you're, I mean, you're good on camera too. So, (laughs) Uh, yeah,
1: I don't, I don't really understand it to be honest with you. Like, they had last year's champion there and they didn't even include us in their little documentary about the 200. I'm sure that won't happen again.
0: Um, on kind of similar note, uh, I was aware there's a little bit of chatter leading up to that race too, uh, between you and some of the, at least one of the other racers.
1: Yeah. I, um, yeah, these goons. I I was kind of trying to talk to them to, to build a little bit of hype. Is how it originally started. I said, why don't we just go back and forth a little bit on the internet? We'll build a little bit of drama, get more people to watch the race because we both have big followings. And the response was, no, you're not in my league. So I was like, Ow. Okay, all right. Then. <laughs> so then I just started it on my own because I was like, well, if you're not going to play the game, I'm going to make you play the game, kind of. And, uh, yeah, these they just can't handle it. They don't understand. They're they're not, uh, as smart as other people on the grid, I guess, but yeah. Like, uh,
0: yeah. So were they taking it like personal or just didn't even know what to do with that sort of banter? The,
1: the funny part is he's the first one to throw shots at everybody else. But then when somebody talks back, he doesn't know how to handle it and gets all like weird. Um, I guess it takes it personal, but if you're gonna throw shots at me, I'm throwing them right back. I don't, I don't take crap from nobody at the racetrack. Like, I, I think I'm the man when I show up to the racetrack, whether or not I'm the champ or not. I show up like I am the champ, like I'm gonna win the race, you know. So, I don't know. These guys don't. Uh, I guess they don't watch any other sports or, or anything. They just uh, stick to their. They just daily well, life, yeah. yeah and then,
0: so what is then, uh, like? In this sport, what's the rapport, like, on the grid? And is it? do you find it kind of different in series by series?
1: Yeah, the tricky thing is with, like, racing is so many other things can go wrong. It's not like UFC where you've trained for for a couple months, you're going into the octagon, and and it's man-on-man. Like, one of you is going to win, you know what I mean? On the grid, there's 20 guys, and your bike can break, somebody can take you out, like it's a little bit different. And when you start talking, talking smack on the grid and and on social media and stuff, it's, it's always hard to be able to say like, well, yeah, I'm going to back it up because like I said, anything can happen. So, um, it's not really a sport where shit talking is very well accepted. And, uh, i don't know people don't like it as much in racing for some reason it's more of like a everybody's so politically correct and
0: yeah is racing supposed to be more like gentlemanly or
1: i don't know i think racing's supposed to be uh like it was in the 70s and 80s and i think barry sheen and 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 those guys like they're smoking cigarettes on their grid taking a shot before the race and then they go party after the race and they got all the girls and the money and the fame and that's what racing should be, I think, you know. It it should be exciting and people want to tune in because they don't know what these guys are going to do next. Yeah. Now, it's kind of turned into like, well, we we do our job, we train, we eat healthy, I wear my glasses and read my books and and like, I don't know, it's it's kind of gotten a little bit uh too like toned down, I think.
0: What's well, interesting Cause then um I mean, there is certainly more personalities, let's say in like Supercross for yeah. example, so, and I'm curious where Like, where does that divide come from in just the culture of road racing versus off-road?
1: I think it's because the guys in Supercross, a lot of them, um, most of them have longer contracts and they kind of really don't give a shit, I think. Like, Dean Wilson was one of the ones that kind of started it and rocks. And, and, like, those guys kind of just do their own thing. And if you like them, you like them. If you don't like them, who cares, you know? Um, Like, (laughs) J-Law, he, like, was one of the biggest characters in the sport just no brains just did what he wanted to basically got booted out of the series for being a little too wild and partying all the time and like obviously there's an extreme and and you probably shouldn't go that far but you can have a little bit of fun time to time and and like show who you really are and what you really like to do because not everybody's a, a little nerd all the time like you can't I mean I guess some guys can but I can't I can't be that guy that's I eat healthy 24 seven and train 24 seven and don't think about anything else and don't do anything else. Like there's other stuff I like to do. I like to have fun and enjoy myself. I'm a normal person. At the end of the day, I just happen to be good at racing motorcycles. Yeah.
0: Well, and I imagine that all the other things that are part of uh, everyday life for an average person um, spectators or or fans of racing relate to that. And I think uh, any fan would uh, become a fan of a rider that they can see elements of their, their just regular personal life that they can relate to versus, you know, somebody that the only thing they do is live and breathe, uh, racing. And it, it's probably a little bit harder to connect with somebody like that.
1: Well, yeah, everybody's trying to put on this like MotoGP persona where they're like, all I do is, uh, eat broccoli and cycle a hundred miles a day. And, um, I post these cool thumbs up pictures with my sponsor's shirt and, uh, and my kids and, and all this, like nobody cares, dude. Like go ride your dirt bike, post a video. You having fun and enjoying yourself and call it a day. We don't need like the whole masking up your actual personality because you're trying to impress sponsors. And like, you're going to get more sponsors at the end of the day. If you're being yourself and having fun and, and showing everybody that you actually have talent and not just, uh, I can smile with a thumbs up with my sponsor shirt on and and look like a goofball. Like you gotta, you gotta have some kind of personality, something to stand out, you know, like a good one at it is like Rispoli. That dude's always laughing and and having fun and like, he's a goon, but yeah.
0: Well, I mean, and at the end of the day, you're in a fun sport.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We're supposed to be having fun. It's not like everybody shows up to the, to the Moto America races. They all look miserable. Nobody looks like they want to be there. They're like, I gotta, I gotta get my job done and leave. Like, dude, relax. You're racing a motorcycle for a living. Like having, you're supposed to be having fun. That's why we started doing it in the first place. Enjoy yourself. And like, yeah, get the job done, take your job serious, but there's gotta be some level of fun to it. Otherwise, why are you doing it?
0: Yeah, certainly.
1: There's not enough money in it to be that serious. You know what I mean? Like it's one thing if you're making 10 mil a year, like, like you're in the NFL, like, okay, yeah, maybe take that a little bit more serious and, you still got to have fun though. Otherwise you're burn out in four years and you don't want to do it.
0: hundred percent. Um, so the, it, certainly I'd say the sport in America, it, it's in a weird, uh, position and, uh, you know, it, before we started interviewing, we'd, we we're hanging out with some of the triumph employees and, and they remember a day where it was a lot larger and, um, kind of just noted that at the time, the entire industry was a lot larger. So, um, it, it's in a weird place now, but Um, I'm one of the reasons you're here is actually to, you're going to stunt double in a new road racing movie, which is, is pretty cool. And I'm not going to talk a ton about this movie because I'm going to publish this episode in, uh, in about a week. And I don't think they're ready to, to really talk about it. So I'm not going to bring up the name of the film, but there is going to be a movie coming out about road racing. And, um, in general, that's just exciting to me because I think the sport could certainly use it, um, and, uh, I'm really excited that you get to be a part of that project.
1: Yeah. Thanks for, uh, put my name forward on the, on the list there whenever, uh, it was mentioned, but yeah, no, it's just something cool for me to kind of do outside of racing, which is, uh, obviously racing at the moment, like you said, it's not in a great way. There's not a whole bunch of money in the sport and the money kind of stays at the top. And right now I am where I'm at. I'm not, I'm not the guy that's winning a superbike title this year. So there really isn't much money for me for this year racing. So you kind of got to make a living somehow and and to be able to, to do something cool like that where I'm still riding and I'm on the set of a movie and meeting all these people is, it's cool. Like it's something to do. It's an interesting opportunity for me and it's something different. And sometimes you got to branch out and try new things. And, and to me, it seems like a cool experience and yeah, there's, there is no money in racing at the moment, which kind of is, it's really, it's funny, but it's not funny because it's, it's us that's the riders that suffer from it so um and the teams too like th- there's some uh really passionate team owners that haven't been able to go racing because they can't afford to do it and they can't find the sponsors to do it so it is really unfortunate and and it's kind of crazy how how uh how little money there is compared to what used to be and um it's all got to do with sales of motorcycles and the promotion of the sport and Obviously, I, 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 you can't blame it all on the series or the organization or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, think in previous years they didn't do any favors to it. Um, well, tons of factors,
0: but th- I think that is a, a uh, this movie can only help. So, my, yeah. I mean, my hope is that it's a a smash hit and it, it just brings a new audience into the sport. And and we see how other things i mean if you look at uh, formula one right now and just how the netflix show uh, has blown up that sport uh sometimes it just takes an outside influence So i'm really hopeful that um it just brings people back and and creates an awareness and then some interest in american road racing
1: it's uh it's really interesting what the drive to survive series did and i think um I think that's why motocross and supercross is still a little bit bigger than us right now as well, because they've always had a series called, uh, inside the outdoors. And, um, a lot of the supercross riders and motocross riders have their own like YouTube vlogs and like them just doing their own thing in their daily life. And people want to see what you're doing day to day. Like as an, ath- like if you're an athlete or you're supposed to be a somebody, you know what I mean? Like people are always interested in what you're doing, whether you're sitting at home eating hot dogs for the day with your family, like people for whatever reason they just like they want to know you know yeah
0: well i mean it it matters i think in it specifically matters in individual sports because in team sports um one it's it, the team sports have just crossed a threshold in pop culture but um i think a lot of it has to do with teams are from cities so you get behind you get behind your city yeah. and you go to you go to games and it doesn't matter what the sport is you you know you you've kind of grown up in this culture and and you root for your home team but individual mm-hmm. sports don't have that so um now instead of rooting for your home team if if you're going to watch an individual sport you have to pick a person yeah. and if they're not from your hometown well then what makes you like yeah, that person like
1: them? and that's i think the that's a really important reason why like I also, I do our behind the scenes stuff at the race weekends and like, I'm always just pushing videos out and trying to like, yeah, you got to market yourself to an extent, you know, obviously you got to try and not be over the top with it and just be yourself. And if people like you, they like you. If you don't like, if they don't like you, who cares? (laughs) Like it is what it is. You kind of got to just put on as good of an image as you can and, and be yourself and hope that people like you, I guess, and also be good at what you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: it, it takes both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, winning doesn't hurt. And, um, it just, you know, it, really being vulnerable and showing yourself, I people be, people appreciate that. So, um, the, there's one more thing I, I need to ask you about. And, and certainly, um, you, you've had some, some cool opportunities, uh, recently and, and another recent one with triumph. We, we started with the, um, the walk of fame and the bricks, but one of the reasons you went over there was, I believe you're the only person in the world that's ever ridden our uh, our prototype Project TE1 motorcycle. So um Triumph developed uh they, they they partnered with a number of um entities. So uh Williams um and then uh the university over there and even the uh Great Britain and and by the way I'm probably going to go ahead and clean all this up in the intro (laughs) of the outro, because I'm going to stumble over all the great partners that were involved in this, but, um, they all came together to develop the TE1 project, which was really a a research and development project in electric motorcycles. And, uh, at the end of the project they brought you over to be the test rider for that. So.
1: Yeah, that was super cool. Like, uh, that's one of those unforgettable experiences. And that's another thing that kind of like was pushing me a little bit more to want to do more film stuff, to be honest, because we sat there for like a couple of days, just like filming and going over the shots and what they're trying to get and how to do it. And me talking in front of the camera, which is another important reason why as an athlete doing like a vlog or videos and kind of doing your own content helps is because when you do get put in an opportunity Well, now I can speak in front of a camera just as well as I can speak in front of you or, or whoever, like I, I, uh, I enjoy it. And it's something that like, when you do get the opportunity, it helps to be prepared for. So for me, that was super cool. And obviously riding a prototype bike, that's however many million pounds to develop and all these cool engineers that, that went through the whole process of coming up with this electric vehicle and going through all the safety briefings and, and then getting chucked out on the track with this brand new electric bike that they're like, well, it could shock you, but it shouldn't. But if it does, you're going to be stuck to the bike. And if it catches on fire, get away from it. Like all these little things that you're just like, Oh, I don't know what I just got myself into, but everything turned out good. And and the thing was super fun to ride. And I had a blast. Honestly, it was, uh, one of the, cooler experiences inside my career that's been outside of actually racing um probably one of the best trips that I've ever gone on just to go ride and have fun and film and um meet new people and and just enjoy myself really outside of racing it was really cool
0: yeah well I'm so glad that you did that and uh certainly I think a lot of people are jealous of that uh opportunity because we've gotten like so much response to that motorcycle and it's it's one of those where it's uh very polarizing right people love it or hate it and yeah. uh and certainly there's a lot of triumph fans that love us for our heritage and the modern classic bikes and and so they're probably not looking into an electric bike but there's uh definitely a big audience out there that um just love the roadsters and are really intrigued by electric yeah.
1: so well, at the end of the day it is the future and honestly the sooner that triumph or any brand really can get into it and start learning and developing things like the better it's going to be for them in the future because I know in England, they have some rule that like 2035, every vehicle has to be electric. Like, yeah, so certainly so there's, it's coming. Yeah, you know,
0: cities and countries are starting to put um, markers in the sand of, hey, by this date, yeah. uh, no internal combustion engines. So, um, yeah, it, it is the future, but um, yeah.
1: that's yeah, going to translate yeah. over into racing. And like, it's just better to get the jump on it now, you know, and, and it's cool because now they have the technology. So, having the technology for one ev and now they're also coming out with motocross bikes so well now they have the like electricity stuff and why can't they chuck a battery in in a dirt bike you know like there's all kinds of opportunities that kind of open up now that they have the technology and it's really whether or not i guess they want to do it or if they fine tune it enough to where it's safe to do yeah. it. I don't know, but, um, yeah.
0: well, certainly everybody will. And, uh, it's just sort of, it's, a matter it's, it's of time, more of really. a, a when, and then just yeah. being ready when the time comes. So, uh, I know, uh, Triumph is doing all the things they need to do to be ready. And I'm sure every manufacturer is. Yeah.
1: yeah. Steve, uh, it's funny. Cause when you talk to Steve from Triumph in, in UK, he's always like, he's always got the, uh, the media answer of no, we're not producing this no, we're not going to do this race. No, we're not doing this. And then it can change. So um, I think they just have that so that way they don't have any pressure on themselves. But it would be super cool to see that thing in production. Um, I think there's a couple of little bugs that need to be worked out. And obviously it's a prototype, so it's not not ready for the market. But I was really surprised that they were like, yeah, we don't really plan on producing it. But in my head, I'm like, Man, this would probably be one of the best-selling bikes you guys make. Like, it's probably a good financial move to produce it.
0: Yeah. Well, so that one was a one of one, and we've learned a ton from it. And I, I think the, it's a gorgeous-looking bike. Um, but probably the, the the thing that is the biggest development that is easily overlooked just because the looks of the bike and and the power of the bike is the the battery technology development. Right. And this is, is probably the biggest barrier in all electric vehicles. And, and I know we made a lot of strides in, in the battery technology in,
1: on this one. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Like the whole battery thing, like, I don't, I'm not that smart, so I don't really understand most of it, but I do know what a good looking bike looks like. And that thing is beautiful. Like, uh, usually you see Triumphs and you're like, man, that thing looks old. It looks like a bit, uh, a bit retro styled. And I've always in my head, I'm like, man, I'd love to see them come out with something that's a little futuristic and more like modern style. And when I showed up and saw the T1, I was like, that's what I wanted from Triumph. That's exactly what I want. And with the single sided swing arm, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was belt drive.
0: Oh, I didn't. I, I didn't look close enough. Yeah. Um. See?
1: And then it it's got a, uh, yeah, like the tail section and everything was super like futuristic looking. And obviously, there's no gas tank because it's not a gas engine so it's got just like the shape of a tank kind of but uh a different size and different shape like that you're not used to on a normal bike and it just it looked super cool it was super futuristic and you could tell that like the the main bits of it were kind of like the Speed Triple but they did a little bit of uh futurizing to it which was super neat to see and i was uh i know i wasn't there for uh trying to tell them what to do with other bikes but i was like man you guys need to get this single sided swing arm on the daytona so we can go win the daytona 200 again there you go yeah (laughs) and they were like yeah you're not here for that don't worry about that just (laughs) ride the bike and let us know what what you think (laughs) but um yeah no that was a super cool experience and I, i loved it and honestly i hope to ride the bike again when it's a little bit more finalized and actually go out and push the bike to its limits because uh i think there's some things like with the um regeneration uh with the engine like the engine braking they call it like regenerative braking or something like that with with the engine and
0: yeah I that, think, that creates some charging then
1: yeah so it gets a little bit of charging and it also helps you slow the bike down so when you downshift a normal regular engine and you start letting the clutch out and you feel that ooh, like the pull on the engine that's kind of what it what it does when it's you roll off the throttle and it's like and uh it's very interesting how that works. And I think with a little bit more fine tuning and some uh, working with the data guy, I think we could get that working actually pretty good and, and make it feel more like a, an actual engine rather than the electric engine. And um, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a super cool experience, but, uh, I'm I'm pumped. Oh, I want to ride the thing. It
0: sounds like you're volunteering to join the R and D team.
1: Yeah, exactly. I want to be the I want to be the guy that just gets let loose with a bunch of tires and and that bike and go have some fun. <laughs> oh I, well,
0: I, I'll let the team know. I, I'm <laughs> sure uh, you're on the short list of people to call if they ever uh, let it rip again
1: for any bike, for that matter. I'm, I'm always uh, give me some tires and a, and a bike. I'll, I'll change the tires myself by hand. I don't even care. I just want to go ride and, and have some fun. So. Um yeah I'm, I'm always up for doing some labs all right
0: love it well um I, i'm gonna let you get out of here because you got a huge day tomorrow of uh riding on set It, it by the way is, is that your first time doing any like stunt work um for film
1: yeah like... so my first like real project that i did was the triumph thing and that wasn't like really stunt work that was more like ride the bike and we'll get the shots don't worry about what like what you're doing um So yeah, this is like my first time on like an actual set of like a production, like a real production. Um, I'm looking forward to it, but I think it's uh, one of those things where I I have a little bit of experience with filming and storyboards and all that kind of stuff anyway. So um, me looking in on it, like I shouldn't feel too out of place, I don't think, but it's one of those things where uh, I think it's going to bring me back to the days of racing motocross when I was a kid where you're sitting around waiting a lot of the time instead of doing the actual riding. So yeah, there, um, there's
0: going to be a lot of that, but um, I'm really, I like the style that they're taking to this and, and it's, they want it to look as authentic as possible. So that's, they're bringing you in as a, as a racer. Cause they want you guys to go out and race.
1: Yeah. That's, that's awesome because there isn't really, I don't think there's any other movies even like that. And if there is, it's, they don't use pro riders. they use they're stunt guys that yeah okay they they might be able to to do a burnout or do a cool wheelie but they can't push a motorcycle to its absolute limit and and ride the thing sideways and and all this kind of stuff so for me it's going to be cool where um I'm actually going to be able to get on the bike and push the thing and and they're filming me riding at my best which is it's like a normal race for me which is cool and um Yeah. I'm super excited. Like I said, I've done a lot of filming and I have spent a lot of time in front of the camera, which is good. And that's kind of what I I feel like, uh, it helps for something like this, where we've spent so many, so many days at the go-kart track or at the big track where I'm with my videographer and I'm like, Hey, I want to get this shot. You need to stand like here. Like I'm the one that that's like directing it almost like setting up the shots and like, let's do this. I think this would be really cool. And we're spending a whole day of just like trying to get one shot. And I think something like that is going to help for being on a movie set, obviously, because, uh, you got to get the shot, you know what I mean? So, um, I don't know, I might be overthinking it, but
0: uh, all you got to do is get out there and ride. <laughs> I'm just ready uh, to go, yeah, go have no, some it'll, fun. It'll ride be fun. And... Um, I, I think I'm actually going to make it out tomorrow before then Thursday morning, I hop on a flight to AMA vintage days, up yeah. in Ohio. so that's going to be a good time, but at least I get one day on set.
1: Yeah, that'll be sweet, and then uh, hopefully, hopefully Triumph gets out to the Barber Vintage Festival at the end of the year, and maybe I can get out for that too. Uh, I need to hit up the swap meet and get some uh, some collectibles.
0: We'll be there, so um, we'd love to have you. And then um, hopefully next time we chat, we'll be reminiscing on another win and. <laughs> cool times on set and uh, an awesome movie will have been launched
1: yeah exactly and uh maybe some some other filming projects in between who knows anything can happen oh yeah <laughs>
0: we'll find it out so uh, uh thanks for stopping in Brandon. we'll uh well i'll, I'll see you tomorrow
1: cheers <laughs> thank you guys
0: All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brandon. I know I sure did. It was super cool to learn from him about some of his strategies. And it's always cool to hear from an expert in whatever field they're an expert in. Like I said in the beginning, I got links in the bio of this episode to Brandon's full race. I got a link to the story of him riding the EC1. I also got a link to our events page, because like I mentioned, we're going to be up at the Sturgis rally. So If you're going to be up there, come visit me at the Buffalo Chip. Come say hi. Look forward to seeing you guys. Until next time, ride safe.